Well, hello again, everyone. And I'm really delighted to be here and delighted to be part of the Open to Hope uh, presentations that are going on today. Um, I want to welcome you in particular at this time. As we are all aware, and as uh, Dr. Kendruck reminded us this morning, these are um, perilous times that we're in. And for many people, this is actually a time of raw and acute grief. Many people have died, um, 120,000 and um, countless more worldwide. And we're in a pandemic that continues as we, as we gather today. So there are many people who are addressing the grief from COVID specifically. There are many people who have lost someone during the time of COVID and it changed their grief experience. And um, we also know that this pandemic is going to go on. And so I'm hoping you will join me today to prepare for the future and to consider a national strategy for grief. Um, and I'm hoping as our, our day goes on, we'll get to know each other a little better. I'm gonna take a moment to introduce myself now. My name is Kathy Supiano, and I'm at the University of Utah. I'm a social worker by discipline, a palliative care social worker, and a geriatric social worker. And then I also have the great privilege of directing Caring Connections, a hope and comfort and grief program, which is the bereavement care program situated at the University of Utah. So I just would like us to all start with sort of a shared understanding um, and I'm echoing a little bit of what uh, Ken said earlier today, that how we remember and our very acts of remembrance are the ways we hold people near us for the future, even if they are no longer physically present. It's also re a reminder for all of us to live our lives according to this principle and to join together, as I hope we are today, in this shared contribution. So I'd like to start our presentation by talking about grief in the United States. And I wanna frame this with the recognition that while we are, are experiencing an international pandemic, we're also experiencing an upheaval in our social awareness of racism and all forms of social injustice. And so in the United States, when we think about funerals, we think about grief, this is sort of the dominant normative view of a family, loving family, gathered around the person who died, honoring them, remembering them with joy and love. And again, it's this is normative, but you'll notice in this picture, this is a profoundly um, white uh, group of people. And it's important to remember that in the United States, we have the great, uh, wonderful blessing of being multi-ethnic and a diverse society. And so we enjoy a variety of death and memorial practices. And you're seeing on your left a, a very traditional African-American funeral where um, the pallbearers are men and they're dressed identically. And this is... Um, a, a source of comfort for many people. The lower picture is a very interesting fu funeral. This is a funeral of a tribal family funeral. 
Um, this is actually a Canadian picture. This is from one of the First Nations in Canada. Um, and I, I wanted to share this picture. Um, we are in Utah and um, we are um, home to part of the Navajo Nation. And we are seeing incredible numbers of uh, COVID uh, positives and many, many COVID deaths here in our tribal communities. But I think if many of you have been involved in bereavement, bereavement care and bereavement programs over time, or if you just have um, grieved many losses in your own family and in your own community, you are noticing, as I have noticed, that grief observances and practices are, were widely and um, amazingly rapidly changing before COVID-19. Excuse me, before COVID and so I think one of the things that we've been seeing as a backdrop is the very um, rapid um, diversity of grief practices, not only culturally and ethnically, but according to the times that were changing. Um, when I started my work in bereavement care, you would never see balloons at a funeral or funerals were not considered celebratory at all. They were exceedingly solemn and, uh, and, and people wore black and um, it was just a very lockstep. People conducted a funeral according to whatever hymnal was in their faith tradition. But now we're seeing this amazing freedom for variety of expression. And I think one of the things that transformed this was how we attended to the grief of a loss of a child, where first we would see teddy bears in the casket and then more elaborate expressions of celebration of the life that was lived. And you're seeing in the other photo here, a dove release at a funeral and these, and butterfly releases, these are becoming um, very common expressions to transition from a funeral from, you know, maybe a hundred years ago to memorial services where the emphasis is on the person who died to life celebrations, which emphasize the contributions that the person made in their life and, and how we choose to cherish them. But the U United States, all the world, but uniquely in the United States, violent and unexpected death frames much of our public mourning. And of course, you're seeing on the left um, the early stages of the 9 11 uh, disaster where the um, World Trade Center towers went down. And then on the lower right, you're seeing the Challenger explosion. The Challenger disaster happened right when headline news really became one of the prominent news sources in, in the United States. And I remember seeing the Challenger explosion every 15 minutes for hours because it was just such a shocking event. And of course, very little could um, overwhelm us more than the disaster of 9-11. Of but this now shapes a violent awareness of death and loss in the United States and puts this very much in the public eye. Similarly, it, we see these spontaneous expressions of grief when there are deaths. And here are two um, notable uh, presentations, and all of you see this in your own communities where there's been a traffic fatality, um, that you'll see um, a memorial placed in the location 
of that traffic fatality. But these are concerning in that some people view them as distractions, some people view them as edifying, but it leads to a question of what do we do with these spontaneous grief memorials as, as time goes on? And these examples are individual expressions of grief. There are also public expressions of grief and how we collectively respond to losses. So I'm going to tease Emily, who is my program administrator here and several decades younger than I am, and I challenged her to remember what this event was and the black and white alone didn't, didn't tip her off. But many of you are probably recognizing that you're seeing um, JFK's funeral here. And the left picture is his actual interment at Arlington National Cemetery. And just to point out here that every single person attending there had a ticket to get into the event. And you see this massive outpouring of grief. But then also in the lower picture, you see the public responding and lining the streets of Washington, D.C. in the motorcade. And you see in the in the bottom corner, his caisson um, carrying the, um, the casket with um, his remains in there. So again, a public and collective response to loss. And so we see these expressions going forward in very, very powerful ways. Again, a roadside display after a mass, um, uh, I believe this was a bus accident where many people died. Um, there you see Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School after the Parkland shooting and the outpouring of expressions, visible, tangible expressions of grief. And then the final picture you see is the Pulse nightclub after the mass shooting there. And some of you may have seen the news this morning. We already had a, a mass shooting again uh, today in the United States. So these outpourings are spontaneous and then. Uh, there's, there's the question of how we retain these expressions and then how we go forward. Contrast this with how we're grieving in the time of COVID. And though the catastrophe of COVID-19 mirrors that of 9-11, there are many, many differences between how we're grieving now and how we were grieving after 9-11. There's a very poignant picture in the New York Times of a nurse in one of the hospitals that was quite near the, the World Trade Center who is stepping out of the hospital actually to have a cigarette and she's just exhausted. And someone asks her, what's the difference? And she said, well, I worked at the same hospital during 9-11 and at 9-11, I stood here waiting for casualties to come that never came because as you know, um, no, uh, very, very few remains were found and very few people needed any medical attention beyond that of first responders. But what we're experiencing in COVID-19 with death is these extremely isolating grief experiences. So again, you saw the picture of Arlington National Cemetery after JFK's death, and here you're seeing the lone bugler um, and it's a very isolated situation. And again, a funeral on the left where very few people can come and um, the very lonely um, actions of funeral directors as they carry out the bereavement activities. 
So the grief of COVID-19 is a grief that's unwitnessed, and that is not only for those who specifically die of the coronavirus, but of people who have died during the pandemic. So what's happening here is this tension between grief in the public eye. You're probably familiar with this image on the left. Um, this is the mass burial site at Hart Island in New York, um, where the bodies of those who are unclaimed or unidentified um, are um, interred in a mass grave. And then this from weeks ago in the New York Times, when the U.S. death toll uh, exceeded 100 thousand people. So in the public eye, but also without support. Also, as we think about grief, we have to think about the forms of grief that are happening to our healthcare workers who are on the front lines dealing with this every day. And their grief is, is compounded by multiple factors, by trauma, um, one of my own student nurses um, here from the College of Nursing uh, was on a relief uh, practice team that went to New York and um, cared for COVID patients in a hospital. And she reported that it was all they could do to keep people clean. And her job as a very experienced trauma nurse was to make sure that all the patients who were certainly all dying at that time um, were given baths so that they were as clean and comfortable as possible. So we're also seeing the impact in, in our healthcare workers in terms of long-term moral distress, their own risk of sustaining infection or dying, um, the death of their colleagues because many of our health workers have succumbed to COVID infection and died, um, their concern about risk to their own family, and many are electing to choose to leave healthcare and the professions. So there will be long and lasting residual trauma and grief in our healthcare workers. So what I'd like you to consider now is the deaths that have happened since the COVID pandemic began and, and, and reflect on how this is similar or different from other national catastrophes, including war. First of all, there's a risk for disenfranchised grief and disenfranchised loss. And this is, comes from the work of Kendoka, who recognizes that there are some forms of grief that are not socially endorsed. And because we're not able to grieve and gather at funerals the way that we were prior to the pandemic, a lot of this grief goes unrecognized and is unsupported. And people fail to take it seriously. Uh, I myself, as a geriatric social worker, am profoundly concerned about the ageism that's associated with the COVID deaths because the vast majority of those who have died so far have been older adults. And many people are minimizing the lives those people lived and are quick to write off those lives. And we're even hearing on a political level people saying that it's all right if old people die if it supports the economy. So then, if you're the family member, bereaved of that beloved parent or grandparent uh, or spouse. This is a very, very profound, under-recognized grief. Next is the reality that many of these griefs are experienced by the griever as ambiguous losses. And this is the work of Pauline Boss, who reminds us that when there's uncertainty about the nature or circumstances of the death or a nature and uncertainty of the relationship you had with the person who died, that can lead to a fraught grief experience. 
And so the tragic part of the COVID virus deaths is that these are unnecessary deaths. Um, these are not deaths that we would have prepared for. These are not deaths that we would anticipate. And yes, it can be a surprise when people die of cancer, but most deaths, particularly those in late life, we have a chance to prepare for. And so these ambiguous losses are very difficult to manage. As we mentioned with healthcare workers, is true for all of us. And I, if you're a grief professional, I want you to be aware of that. Um, there will be trauma that follows. There will be post-traumatic experiences for all of us. There could be post-traumatic growth for all of us, but that doesn't minimize the trauma. But particularly in our care of others in our community, we need to be attentive to the trauma sequela, which are certain to come. And then there's a risk for complicated grief. And so complicated grief, of course, is multifactorial. Uh, I don't have time to go into the details of complicated grief, which now does look like it's going to be referred to as prolonged grief disorder. Um, you'll have the opportunity to hear Catherine Shear later today. Um, but complicated grief is a form of grief that essentially disables the griever, meaning the grief is experienced with such intensity, such severity, and over such duration that the person who's grieving withdraws from their social supports and really is unable to proceed with a life in the absence of the person who died. And so this is a very powerful risk that we are going to see exacerbated because of the pandemic. So just to remind you where we are with this and why a national strategy for grief care is so important. I don't know where any of you live, but if you look on the left, you see the start of the pandemic and we could roughly place that in late February to mid-March, the first two weeks of March. And this is when we saw the deluge of cases arriving in hospitals, the shortage of PPE, the risk of the shortage of ventilators, the risk of the shortage of dialysis machines, which still remains. Many people thought that wave was going to be steep and peak, and you remember all the literature about flatten the curve, stay home, and the reason we were all sent home from work was to flatten that curve. The curve has flattened somewhat, though most people would tell you, most epidemiologists will tell you that we are still in the first wave. But let's look at what's to come. We know there'll be a rebound wave afterwards. We know there will be incredible losses because the focus has been on COVID and many people have put off cancer care or cardiovascular care or surgical procedures and they will enter those procedures with heightened morbidity because of this delay. We will also have that next wave of the actual virus as people, and we're seeing this happen now as people are moving out into normal activities, many of them without masks, many of them not following um, physical distancing guidelines. Then we will see the tail end of the first wave of the pandemic, and this is the post-ICU recovery. These are the people who actually then survive the COVID virus. Many of these are young people who may not have even been aware they are affected, but for those people who are severely ill, they will now be facing the consequences of the comorbidities, and we're going to see protected lung disease, cardiovascular disease, 
many people are experiencing long-term renal failure and will need renal dialysis short-term, perhaps forever for the balance of their lives. And we are now starting to understand the long-term dementia exacerbation consequences of the COVID virus. And so we're going to see another wave of morbidity and mortality. That third wave is the delay in care of chronic conditions. So not just surgery or cancer care like chemotherapy that was suspended, but the disruption of chronic care, care of hypertension, uh, care of COPD, care of CHF, et cetera. And then that fourth wave, which is so devastating, and is, I believe, the work that people like me, professionals like me, are going to have to do, and that is the fourth wave. And this is when people are going to have trauma, uh, and people are going to have post-traumatic stress disorder is now going to be diagnosable. We're going to see healthcare professionals that experience burnout. But as a person who does uh, bereavement care for all kinds of losses here in the Intermountain West, I must report to my distress that as COVID deaths are increasing, we are not seeing a decrease in suicide death nor overdose death. Those deaths continue to accelerate. And so um, I think we're in for a, a long, a long-term need to attend to grief bereavement and collective mourning as, as a nation and as a community. So I'd like to highlight some of the recent research that shapes much of what we're going to talk about. I'm going to, in this talk, share two articles with you. So the first is work um, by Deborah Carr's research group that includes Catherine Borner and Sarah Mormon um, about <clears throat> COVID deaths and what we're experiencing. So this is um, bereavement now in the time of coronavirus. So what these authors share and what I've alluded to before is that the COVID deaths exemplify what we would call bad deaths. So if you, like me, work in palliative care and hospice care, you know, one of the goals that we strive for is to give the patient the most comfortable death possible and a death on their own terms as much as possible, and that the definition of the good death is whatever the patient and family tells us is the good death, not what the clinician says. But I think there's universal recognition that these COVID deaths are profoundly bad deaths. It's very, very difficult to attend a symptom burden as people are dying of COVID. So bad deaths violate our cultural expectations for what a peaceful death is, and that that peaceful death should be um, where symptoms are attended to and that there is minimal suffering. So if you're familiar with the work of B.J. Miller, he talks about this necessary suffering that comes from just living and your chance of getting cancer or your chance of getting in a car accident. But then he also talks about unnecessary suffering, and that's our inability to attend to, or our unwillingness, but usually in this case, our inability to attend to the distressing symptoms that happen. So these are deaths that have considerable suffering. This distress is compounded by the context in the setting where people die. So now people are dying in nursing homes and in hospitals without family present. And I can't stress this enough, 
how traumatizing this is for both the patient who is dying to not be able to hold the hands of the family members who love them, but how profoundly this bereavement is initiated when the family cannot be present to comfort their family member who's dying. And this all happens in the context of co-occurring stressors and the loss of face-to-face -face mourning rituals, that large family gathering, the gathering that happens in the hospital, the gathering that happens in the cafeteria after the patient dies, translates to the memorial service where the entire community, neighborhood, the work group comes together to grieve the death, and the family is really gifted with the care and attention of that community. So virtual memory, uh, memorial services, distance support groups, and other innovations may provide short-term support for survivors during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in our own grief program, um, we were providing face-to-face -face groups along the I-15 corridor in the Intermountain West here in Utah. And very quickly, and mostly thanks to Emily, um, we were able to quickly pivot and go to Zoom meetings and had, in a very short order, had nine different law-specific grief support groups going by Zoom. Again, we would have to say we did a great job with this, but there are many people who say quite correctly, I just would have wanted to sit next to people. I just would have wanted someone, someone to hug me. And the best Zoom in the world, I mean, apart from this, the best Zoom in the world uh, cannot replace human tangible touch. And so this paper by um, Deborah Carr and Associates um, calls for national efforts to promote advanced care planning and to care for grieving people. So Emily will put this um, first reference up in the chat box um, with instructions about how to access that article, but we will have all this information for you at the end of the webinar. So we do want to then create um, programs that are uniquely um, topically related to the distinctive needs of those grieving COVID death or death in the time of COVID. So one thing that's really hopeful when we address this situation is we have to remember that grief has the potential to initiate social movements. And so if you look here on this screen, you'll see many political social movements that came out of sorrow. One of the earliest ones is Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, where two mothers just gathered and said, we don't want other parents to suffer the way that our families have suffered when our children died. You're seeing a couple examples of gun safety um, activities that have responded to the numbers of mass shootings. You see in the center the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which similarly was started by um, cu customer, consumer advocates that said we must do something to prevent suicide. The Alzheimer's Association, the American Cancer Society, many people don't realize they started as family member, customer-driven programs. And then the Trevor Project, which is uniquely responsive to um, loss in the LGBTQ community of, of suicide, loss survivors, and, and su suicide prevention efforts. So I think this is my invitation to you to think about how our collective grief could be part of a larger social transformation.